Welcome to Teachings in the Air. air, air. podcast with Jerry Oldman, coming to you from Hunkameenam Territory with a podcast series about indigenous men's health and wellness. We aim to inspire, motivate, and empower indigenous men to be sound in mind, body, and spirit, because that's what health means. Hello, this is the Hills that Coming to you from Brandon, Manitoba, with teachings in the air. Oh, today, I'm so lucky to have wonderful guests with me. And I'm calling this podcast Under the Influence. It's about the trauma of money. It's about you know, our world today with money as Indigenous people. You know, to give it a bit of con- context, I wanted to talk about, first off, about indigenous people, BC, that means before contact. And all of us were hunter-gatherers, fisher people, living off the land. Protein was animals and birds, and we'd dig roots. And, uh, you know, we were very healthy people. And we were also astute business people because we would trade with other nations. The example I use is the Grease Trail from Billacoola into the interior. They would trade Uligan Grease. And Uligan Grease is like liquid gold, you know, just chock full of omega-3 and stuff to help you be healthy. You know, so I know they've done this all across the continent. People, our people were traders, we were business people. But we weren't using money, what we call money today. We were trading goods, things of value, canoes, flint, food, clothing. That was what we were trading. And probably knowledge on medicines and different things we would trade. And so we were very healthy people. Then all of a sudden, contact. And as I was getting ready for this podcast, I would remember my elders talking and this surprise that these were human beings, but they were different mm. in language and the color of their skin and their dress and how they done their hair. Everything was seemed to be different. But they walked like us, you know, <laughs> they needed food and water. 
So there were these similarities, but these glaring differences. And one of the stories I heard was, um, you know, they gave this man gold. And that man started laughing, jumping around, rolling on the ground. He had this handful of gold and they could see the impact it had on this one individual, gold. My, my late father said that when he's a little boy, if the men wanted a rifle, the store owner would say, you fill the barrel with gold dust and nuggets and you can have the rifle. So we started to engage then with these people. They wanted fur, you know, beaver, and beaver was a big item. All the men, not all the men, many men in Europe were wearing beaver hats, hats made out of beaver fur. So they started to engage with these newcomers. And I think of the, the ones that first come here. And not to generalize or to be very realistic, the ones that came were looking for wealth, for gold, you know, precious metals, precious stones, fur. So they were commercial capitalists that were looking for wealth. And to them, wealth meant power. So I tell people today, those ones were in love with power. And they would do anything to gain it. And our people, meanwhile, believed in the power of love, of respect for the food, for the water, for the air, for the trees, for everything around. Just believe that we're all interconnected. I know in my culture, that's the way they were thinking. And also other people I've shared with different nations had similar. So I don't want to say I'm speaking for all of the indigenous people. But for Statlium, you know, and others that I've talked to, that we live by this philosophy of the power of love. And we try to discourage the love of power in our midst because we could see the harm that would come from it. So the history of this first contact and then how it developed. You know, I, I wondered why my people didn't have stricter immigration policies and laws. You know, because it just simply wasn't possible. Because by, I think it was 1854, 85% of our population died from smallpox. Then all of a sudden, around that same time, and of course it makes sense, they were carrying the smallpox, these newcomers. All of a sudden, there was 10,000 gold seekers 
in the town of Alalawit in 1854. So they put a strain on the food sources. Our people started trading dried salmon with them, deer meat, you know, so we were dragged or thrust into this new way. And it's about money. And along with that money, of course, there was alcohol. The Hudson Bay Company, the, the trading companies would give away alcohol because they could see the impact on the people they were trading with. It would weaken them and they could get, for them, it would be a better deal. <laughs> you know, if I was to trade with you and then I negotiated with you, you know, the best thing is be fair to both of us. We'd both benefit. But in these cases, it wasn't so. And that's where, when I first heard of um, the trauma of money, light bulbs were going off in my brain or lightning flashes. Mm -hmm. And I say, that's, this is it. This is one of the, I guess you could say the core issues and impacts on indigenous people is this whole world of money. You know, and because when you say money, you know, we start to talk also about poverty, unemployment, violence, different feelings that come up from not having it or being prevented from having it, because I know that's part of the history. So I'd like my listenership to know that I'm blessed today. And we're all going to be blessed to hear it seems appropriate to me, life givers that have been looking into this topic of the trauma of money. Because trauma means to be wounded. And what can be wounded on a human being? Their mind, their body, their spirit, and their heart can be wounded. So I'm just so happy to, for all of us to explore this world of money. Because there also can be, you know, when we look at the other side of the picture, a lot of benefits, a lot of goodness can be done with this new way. So I'd like to introduce you to my guests and have them introduce themselves. And I thought to first go around, we talk about our own life in the world of money, you know, and uh, trauma. So I have with me today Chantel and Vicky, who are out there in the world, spreading the word, you know, that there's another way, you know. So I don't, I, the last time I talked to you, I didn't know who to introduce first or how this will go. So I'm going to leave it in your two hands. And um, Vicky's pointing at Chantel. So Chantel, I'm going to ask you to 
you know, put some teachings in the air and um, share about your whole journey around the trauma of money. Thank you so much, Jerry. It's, it's really such an honor to be here in this really sacred container with you and with Vicki, who I've had multiple pleasures of co-facilitating with. So I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I am a uninvited settler of European descent. Um, so I am aware, I don't know who my father is. So I don't know that lineage of, um, in my ancestral lineage, I don't know that side. Um, I work and live on the traditional um, territory of the Musqueam, Kwantlen and Swassens people, which is known as Richmond, BC. Um, I am the founder of a school called the Trauma of Money. And um, we work with folks in a couple different ways. Um, one is we work with people who would like to heal their relationship with money personally. And we also train professionals who would like to help others heal their relationship with money. So we have um, therapists, we have trauma therapists that get trained by us. We have economists, we have financial professionals, we have folks who work at universities who write curriculums. Uh, anyone that interacts with anyone around money they may find this program interesting. And um, many people interact with money and other people. And I'd love to share a little bit about my personal story, my personal journey, um, because I think it gives some really good indications to what the trauma of money is. Because I think if we live in, uh, within capitalism, if we live under colonization, we absolutely experience trauma of money. And um, this is because those systems create trauma. And it's, it's hard to not have trauma of money without those systems, without being in those systems. So many folks will um, come to our program and want to focus on their own individual trauma experiences. Like my parents, you know, did this with money, therefore I feel like I have trauma, trauma of money. And while that is incredibly important to explore our own individual experiences, we really believe that understanding collective trauma is a massive part of the key to healing because so much of the trauma that is experienced is layered. So the healing of that trauma has to be layered. Um, so a little bit about my story, um, on my LinkedIn profile, you'll see that I started my career in finance at 21 years old, which is young for a finance career. I started as a mortgage broker, um, but my, my real career in finance started, I think when my mother was carrying me in her womb. And I say this because my, um, my mom got pregnant with me when she was 18 years old and she got pregnant as she was grieving, grieving the death of her sister. And um, she was 
because she was in a state of deep grieving and she was so young, she was in a situation of extreme scarcity and scarcity on multiple levels. She was in financial scarcity. She was in emotional scarcity. Lots of scarcity was going on. And, and this was kind of my, my in, entry point into, into this body and into this world. And I grew up in poverty with a single mother. Um, the father figure, not my biological father, but my brother's father who was around was a heroin addict and he was in and out of prison. And um, that I always say is my, the beginning of my finance career because you become very hyper aware of money in situations like that. You know, and there is this belief that folks who are in poverty or maybe don't have their finances very um, organized or um, their finances together in a way that dominant culture deems to be successful, there is this belief that they don't think about money too much. They're not maybe good with money. And that's actually not true at all. We know from the research around the psychology of scarcity that if you have financial scarcity, it's on your mind 24 seven, you're constantly thinking about money. So I became a money expert at a very, very young age, you know, and growing up in an environment like this, you hear things a lot about money. Like you hear, no, we can't afford that. You hear, you get introduced to comparison at such a young age. And I had some experiences in my childhood around abuse, um, sexual abuse and surviving incest that were extremely traumatic. And I believed that if we had money, none of that stuff would have happened because I could see like all the stress around money that my mom was experiencing. And I felt the only reason why we're in this situation where I'm around unsafe men is because there's a lack of money. And so I developed this narrative that if I had money, I would be safe. And, you know, at the end of the day, our relationship with money and the trauma connected to that really comes down to, and, and you said trauma is like a wounding. And it's so true, you know, a traumatic experience happens or it, when essentially our safety or our sense of worthiness is impacted, right? And that's what can really lead to that trauma and that wounding. So I believe that if I had money, I would be safe. And if I had money, I would also be worthy. And so, yeah, so growing up with that narrative, it really led to some really interesting behavior. So one thing was when I was in my teen years, like 17 to 20, I got in a relationship with someone who was heavily involved in organized crime. And he had quite a bit of money from what I had seen growing up. And the trauma brain was like, this is safety. Yet I was living in a home that had bars on my windows because home invasions happen regularly to his community. Um, being involved in this lifestyle. And I, thank goodness, had a moment of awakening and said, I can't, I have to get out of this lifestyle. And I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity because not everyone does. And, but my relationship with money and this 
this deep subconscious belief that money equals safety never changed. And my money worshiping, as I called it, just kind of manifested in other ways. So I became work obsessed and I became a workaholic. And I was doing all these other things too, where I was constantly overspending so I could present in a certain way. You know, I remember when I was in my early 20s, brand new mortgage broker had no money and I leased a brand new Audi, which I could barely afford. I could barely afford many things and let alone an Audi. But I really believed if I look this certain way, then the money will come to me. And I created a, a lot of debt for myself and um, a lot of suffering. I always, I also had other behaviors such as undercharging and under earning. So because my sense of worth and safety was so impacted through traumatic experiences, I believe that I wasn't value, valuable enough to say, hey, I actually want to charge more or, hey, I want to ask for a raise or, hey, I want to negotiate these payment terms with you. So it led to so many life decisions that were all on this basis of money obsession. And at the end of the day, it was really safety obsession, you know, and it, and it was also another obsession and desire. And this is the desire to feel a sense of connection, which is a biological imperative for us to feel safe and connect, connected to be within community shows a certain level of safetyness and worthiness. And I felt like I was really missing that for my life. And so, you know, then I get in a relationship with someone who is extremely wealthy and I started traveling the world on private jets and hanging out with billionaires and all those feelings, they never went away. You know, nothing changed. I was still operating in this state of scarcity and I was actually noticing my suffering even more. And then I went through this experience where someone in my family called me, he was living on the downtown east side in Vancouver, and he had a heroin and fentanyl addiction. And he called me and said, please pick me up from the detox center. I just got kicked out for getting in a fight. So I picked them up and I'm like, what, what is happening? Why are you, why are you on the streets? Like, what is happening? And I threw myself into their recovery. And I was like, I will do anything I can to make sure that you heal from your addiction. Mm -hmm. And while doing this, um, I realized that, wow, I, I'm also an addict too, but like all of my addictions are so socially accepted, workaholism, money obsession, overspending. The systems love it when you overspend, you know, it's so easy to overspend in capitalism and consumerism. And I was doing all these different things. And then another addiction that I realized I was holding was the same one that helped me help this family member in their recovery, which was codependency. And, you know, it was at the point where I was taking all my income and paying for their recovery and, you know, doing everything I could. Um, and it did impact my own, you know, my own finances and all of that. And um, so it was really a gift that experience because this person grew up with me and I was like, what, like, what made you do the heroin? Why did you do the fentanyl? Why were you doing all these things? And we talked at depths about the, 
the voices in his head, like, I'm not good enough. I'm, you know, inadequate. I don't feel safe. And I was feeling all the same things. And, you know, it's just my drug of choice manifested in such a different way. And so that was the moment that it all kind of came together. And I realized like, wow, the way we show up around money actually has nothing to do with how much financial literacy we have, because I was a finance expert. I knew all the rules about financial literacy, but I was still doing all these different things. And it has more to do with the trauma that we may have experienced. And so I was like, okay, well, I want to, I need to go deeper into this. So I went on a five-year research journey around trauma and something that I, that became so clear to me was this is a massive issue that is not isolated to folks who have experienced certain, certain types of trauma. There's actually a massive emphasis on the collective trauma from capitalism, from colonization, and from consumerism that's showing up here. And so that's kind of where a lot of my research went because I looked at some of my mom's experiences in poverty, and I looked at some of even my individual trauma experiences of incest and all of that. And I really noticed that so much of it was pinpointed to the trauma of capitalism. You know, and people who act out in abusive ways are sometimes doing it because they are traumatized as well. And, you know, the, the man that abuses the vulnerable young child is looking for a, a moment of power in an environment where they feel like they've been, they have no power because of capitalism and this greed for power. And so, that is essentially how the program came together. So we asked this question, like what impacts our relationship with money? And we came up with this six layered model and it was generational trauma, relational trauma, societal trauma, systemic trauma. Another category we call laws of nature, which really encourages us to maybe look at different worldviews, not just the worldview of capitalism and dominant culture. And then the last was financial literacy. And we always say financial literacy is the last because we know through our research that when the brain is in a trauma-triggered state or a state of scarcity, it's very challenging to interact with financial literacy because we lose access to our cognitive capacity. And so, um, my work was to gather some of the most incredible experts to come in and teach at these different layers. And that's what, what we really do to try and explore all of the intersections between these places. So we can have that layered approach to the trauma healing. And I'm so excited to pass the mic off to Vicki, who is one of my co-collaborators in this space. Um, and Vicki is going to tell you some more about herself and the incredible work that she does under her, her own brands as well. And uh, thank you so much for listening and witnessing my story. Thank you, Chantel. Okay, Vicki. Nakumik, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to give... Um, Thanks to, to you, Jerry, to your team uh, for inviting us to be on this podcast. I'm, I'm so honored, like I told you earlier. 
I went to bed with a smile and woke up with a smile, just excited to be in this space because it was so, it was so deep and enriching the time that we spent uh, together on that, the workshop that we did. So, um, and I'm honored and grateful to be here with Chantelle as well. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, my name is Vicki Oftermauer and I am a proud Inuk woman. I, I come to you, I call, call to you from uh, West End Toronto, um, where I live now. I'm an urban Inuk, um, but I grew up in community on Baffin Island in Iqaluit um, with my community on my motherland. Um, yeah, I, you know, I came to work with Chantel through uh, the Fireweed Fellowship, a fantastic initiative uh, geared towards Indigenous women entrepreneurs and creatives, um, and also Entrepreneur. We work together through that program as well. Uh, same thing, geared towards Indigenous entrepreneurs uh, in the North, uh, where, like I said, where I grew up. And um, come to, you know, work together uh, quite frequently within the Indigenous community. And I mean, I have such a big story too, but I, I can, I'll just share a little bit of how I got into this work. So my my brand, if you will, is Rich and Dig Auntie. And I also created a program um, called Decolonizing Money. And through my experience of growing up, having such a, you know, growing up in community on the land um, and then coming to this urban center impacted me. And, you know, hindsight is 2020, but looking back, you know, not to say that life was perfect in, in community, but it was, as you spoke to Jerry, it was um, abundant, you know, this abundance of land, this abundance of the Arctic Ocean and all that, you know, she had to feed us you know, the abundance of beauty, of community, of, um, you know, wealth as far as what the land provided for us and how it brought us together. The, the beauty of the, um, you know, of the Northern Lights. It was, you know, the going berry picking on the land, you know. Again, in hindsight, I, came to realize that my experience of, I guess you could say trauma of money, you know, came when like moving south, moving here. And, um, you know, having, you know, as a child wanting the latest shoes that everyone was wearing and not feeling like good enough because, you know, like so many things um, started to impact. It, it wasn't until it, we came south that kind of money, the, the realization that money was a thing, you know, and how it impacted, you know, kind of every choice that we had or didn't have, quite frankly. Um, and through my, through my career as well, you know, I worked in 
I didn't work in community. I worked in in kind of you know or corporate organizations. You know, I worked in customer service. I worked. I had very kind of limited um, uh, opportunities, you could say, as far as like where I could work, given my just kind of my life experience up until then, and. So I was, I was limited to, and I also believe that I was limited to kind of customer service. And that was really all that was an option for me. That being said, I worked, you know, I worked my way up in the ranks, so to speak. And I came to realize, oh, I, you know, I'm really driven. I'm, I'm very ambitious and I'm a good worker, you know? But anyways, long story short, my main reason for how I went from that to where I am now, um, you know, facilitating and holding space and coaching and encouraging Indigenous women entrepreneurs and creatives to heal their relationship with money is because I, one is I was, I, given those limited options that I had within kind of the corporate world, so to speak, I, um, I had no choice but to look at my relationship with money because my options were so limited. There was a very clear cap as to how much I could earn in that world. Um, so I had no choice but to, to look at alternate ways of um, kind of shifting my perspective, if you will, my perception of what money is and what is available to me as an Indigenous woman, it, it really amped up when I, you know, left a marriage and I came to realize how vulnerable I was as a single Indigenous woman again. And part of what drives me today is I never want, I, I do not want Indigenous women to have to feel that vulnerable because of leaving a relationship because, or, you know, entering in a relationship, like Chantel said, um, it's part of what drives me. And, um, and then when the social justice movement amped up after the murder of George Floyd and we were finally, um, people had new ears to hear with the plight, if you will, of Black people and, and you know, kind of in the vein of like entrepreneurship and um, Indigenous people, of course, people of color all over the world were starting to be heard for the first time. And through my years of personal work of like, um, kind of tapping into the energy of money, if you will, the energy of abundance that I experienced as a child in community and that you spoke of at the start of this podcast, I came to realize that there's all these Indigenous women entrepreneurs and creatives who are finally, you know, have this opportunity to offer their, their offerings to the world, but they may, the, the likelihood that they may be 
kind of have this relationship with money that is from the capitalistic um, colonial ways of money was high. So, you know, I reached out to a number of elders because I was scared to talk about it, like you said. Um, at the start of the podcast, I, I was afraid to bring it to the community because it is such a, um, it's not something that we talk about so openly. Um, and I was afraid and they all gave me their blessing and I started talking about it. And what I found was the response has been just like, we're, we are aching to talk about it. We need to talk about it. Yeah, and, and we need we need to have this conversation. And so, so here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, as I listen to both of you, you know, share. And I thought, and I thought about the challenges you go through as life givers too, you know, mm-hmm. because um, the world society got twisted somehow. Mm-hmm became patriarchal you know and um, you know so we're going through all of these challenges of finding balance even when i hear the mention of capitalism right. because ism ism is added to words to show negativity like mm-hmm. alcoholism right ism and it just dawned on me this year when i first heard of you two in the trauma of money and i thought capitalism Mm-hmm. Yes, they're going to refer to the negativity that capital brings because we talk about cultural capital for instance people that speak the language that know the philosophies you know the protocols they have cultural capital they're becoming very um, needed individuals in the indigenous community the language speakers for instance because once they leave they take it with them right so, you know, the whole area of value has changed to think that a check or um, dollar, dollars, you know, to look at that value. Because, and I think about um, my people picking tons of berries every summer, end of every summer, tons. You know, they would go as a community and they gather that wealth. My late mother would tell me they would all go. And they would all work together and dry these berries in a way that they can be stored for the winter. And that, she said, when they left the camp, they would divide it equally according to the size of the family. So that is um, connectivity and inclusivity. All together, you know, we're all one. And um, from what I heard was that they would do everything they could to discourage greed. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, for instance, the first kill for the hunt, young hunter was to give away all that meat and the hide and everything with it. You know, so that they would create relationships within the community. I, you know, like I, I, when I was talking to both of you last time, I don't know why I mentioned the time I made a hand drum. And I was so insecure, you know, I grew up in a residential school, you know, and I got impacted by racism and sexual abuse and stuff like that. 
And I became very insecure and I beat myself up quite regularly. Oh, and I had no respect for money. It go through my fingers like water or I give it away or I spend it foolishly, you know. But so when I when I came to and I turned back to the culture and this man was teaching me how to make a hand drum. And I'd have to do it over. He's very patient with me, and I do it over until it was done. And I remember looking at it in awe and I say, This is so beautiful. And I done it. And he comes up to me and he says, you know, you have to give it away, right? Mm -hmm. I remember saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's the first thing I made with my own two hands. I thought it was beautiful. But he says, don't give it to a family. Give it to somebody outside of the family. And he says, don't worry, it'll come back. It'll come back. Right. And I done what he said, and it has come back. Like right now I got five hand drums around me. I make hand drums and people gift them to me and I can pass them on, you know. So that whole idea of reciprocity, when you take out, put back in, was where we come from. Then all of a sudden we get wounded. And I think of uh, my community, um, you know, the welfare system, what they call welfare now. I remember my dad, my late father, telling me the first time the Indian agent came with the first welfare system, which is called relief. That means they're going to give you money and things, you know, because they're locked on the reserve, on the reservation. And my dad said the men of the community chased him away and said, we make our own living with our own two hands. We don't need that handout you're giving to us. Right. You know, but now it has become a way of life. We've come in a, in a sense, permanent wards of the state in the welfare economy. You know, and uh, one of the reasons I was just so looking forward to this, because now we're going to move into how can we inspire and motivate people to live with what they have in a good way. You know, we're gonna now I want you to share the steps that are need to be taken, your view of what kind of action can be taken around our relationship with money. You know, and I think of the trauma I've I've seen, you know, I've been working as a human service worker now for since nineteen seventy six. So I've seen the poverty of single moms, mm -hmm. of elders, of families with, um, you know, six, seven children, and tried to feed them all and put shoes on their feet, you know, and survive and uh, be traumatized and worried. I don't have enough. Like, and I heard you, Vicky, talk about having the right shoes. You know, I, my children. There were children and Michael Jackson and Michael Jordan were on the, the stars and they'd want a Michael Jordan jacket or a Michael Jackson jacket, you know. <laughs> of course, I couldn't afford it. Right. You know, so, and they would feel awkward and out of place going into public because mm -hmm. they're not wearing Nikes or, you know, have the jacket. 
And they start stealing off each other and beating each other up you know, to get that capital, even dress code. You know. So I think this is such an important topic. Vicky, you're right, we don't talk about it. You know, how, to, how can we live and help each other reach our potential, regardless of how much we have? You know, so that's what I'm interested in. And then I guess next steps or course of action. What would you, because you too, I'm so <laughs> lucky to meet you too, because you're, you go right into it. <laughs> yep. No, let's talk about money, okay? <laughs> you know, and uh, very few of us go there. You know, um, I remember my, my daughter owning me, she's stressed out because her best friend, she said, Dad, my best friend, when I, when I have money, she comes to want me to give it to her, give her some. And I told her, daughter, you know, you let people know that that money's already spent for food for you and your children for shelter. But to teach that literacy, when I heard Chantel talk about literacy, and I was thinking, yeah, this is what we need. There's just like there's emotional literacy, how we can teach people to talk about anger, about disappointment, about fear, about anger, about love, about affection. I think we need that too. But we also need to have literacy around money. So we're comfortable how to talk about it. So I just like to ask, um, go back to Chantel to maybe share with us, because you've obviously done studies and you have looked at this, <laughs> you know, which is incredible to me. Um, what do you see as a course of action? Let's say for communities or for families or individuals around dealing with money. Well, I mean, everything that you have said so far, Jerry, in your stories is abundant with action items. And I listen to you from the place of know knowing the the deficits that trauma leaves with people, which is this feeling of being disconnected, not feeling safe, not feeling worthy, um, going into, and then so that we have from trauma and then from capitalism. So ism, like you said, is the negative or it's, it's the thing that is like mostly prioritized and in capitalism, the whole goal of capitalism is to seek profit. And capitalism is working exactly what it's meant to do, it, but its only main focus is profit. And it's like, it's very much like a virus and it mutates. So capitalism is very creative. If it finds hurdles to it creating more product or profit, it will mutate and it will continue and continue and continue, right? And so that capitalism really encourages individuality. It encourages the opposite of everything that you're talking about. 
community, connection. We're all going to go gather, gather the berries together as a community, and then we're going to share them together. Capitalism tells us do not do this. Capitalism tells us to be greedy. Capitalism tells us to think about the individual, right? And even uh, was thinking about Instagram. And if you know much about Instagram, if you post a photo of you and your friends, it is going to get less engagement than a photo of you in a, as a selfie. Because the algorithm wants to encourage individuality. Because in when we're in individually focused, we focused on our own individual deficits, which makes us want to seek out more ways to fix them. For example, buy something, eat something, smoke something, drink something. Like, you know, if we're so focused on the individual, but instead if we shift outside of the individual, and shift into community and shift into connection, we're not just thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about the, the, the health and the benefit of the collective, the community. And from there, our nervous systems experience their most ideal state. And our nervous system's most ideal state, we call it ventral vagal. And the the nickname of this ventral vagal state is called safe and social. So our nervous systems think we're safe when we're social, when we're connected, mm. right? And to me, that is the antidote to a lot of the trauma surrounding money is how can I get out of the, the, the I or the me and go into the we? And, um, and doing that, doing that really for ourselves, for the benefits of our nervous system, because when we can regulate our nervous system, then a lot of different things happen. So when our nervous system is regulated, the front part of our brain, which we call the prefrontal cortex, that comes online. And this prefrontal cortex allows us to have executive decisioning, impulse control, creativity, um, our cognitive capacity is just expanded. This is the place where you want to interact with financial literacy. This is the place where you want to do your visioning for your business. And, you know, you don't want to do it from the place of scarcity and survival, because when we're in that place, we go into, I need to survive and I'm not surviving unless I have the Nikes. So then I go into this or that thinking, right? It's all this, like we call them cognitive distortions. It's like a distorted view. So what, how do we have hope? What are our steps? One, we always say, find your window of regulation first. And we're talking about find the regulated nervous system. And we know one of the best ways to find the regulated nervous system is to connect, to get social, to experience the release of neurochemicals like oxytocin, which is like the bonding chemical, you know? Um, and then from that place, when we're a little bit more regulated, we go into a phase called visioning. And this is where we get really aligned with what, what's our vision for the life that we wanna live. And I always encourage people, don't just think about the vision for you in your life, but think about how you can show up and 
participate in these systems that are inherently traumatizing. So how would you reimagine capitalism? What's your part? How are you gonna keep your side of the street clean? And what are you gonna do? And, but from the lens of caring about the collective. And then after the vision phase, we say, this is where we do inventory. So this is where we start getting into the, some of the finance work, but it also includes not just financial literacy, but emotional literacy too, where we take inventory of, you know, like a moral inventory. So, you know, what's, what's happening with me with money? Like what's arising? Am I undercharging? Am I overspending? Do I have debt that I'm just completely ignoring? Like let's use some radical honesty and take a deep inventory. How much money do I owe? How much money do I make? How much money do I need to, to have in order to survive and thrive? And so from, and then after the inventory stage, we have another very important stage that we'll, we call the harmonizing phase. And this is all about forgiveness. And this is where we, we just took a really radical inventory. This is where we forgive for what we did in the past to survive. And um, we have to have this phase of forgiveness and we have to have this phase of harmonizing before we can move to the next phase, which is action. And so the action phase is where we create the budget. The action phase is where we advocate for ourselves and ask for the raise. The action phase is where we say no and we set a boundary to things that are not serving us. You know, whatever your action may be, a lot of the financial literacy falls in this action phase. And then after that, the next phase is called the refinement phase, which just reminds us that life is always about refining. And that refinement phase allows this model to be more circular, you know, like, where do I need to go back and look at my nervous system? Where do I need to go back and forgive? Where do I need to go back and do inventory? You know, you've um, reaffirmed that the indigenous philosophy was on the right track, you know, and um, when I think of the, we're demystifying money here. You know, who would think that, oh, they're going to talk about money, they talk about healing too, about forgiveness. Right. You know, and on my relationship with money until I dealt with my core issues that were making me an, an unhealthy person that were put on me. I didn't ask for abuse to be abused. Right. But as long as I didn't, they say in the language and calls that to look at myself until I looked at myself and said, yes, I got a problem. You know, I need to get rid of it. You know, that um, it's not me. In a sense, there's nothing wrong with me. My actions have been wrong, but there's nothing wrong with me. I was abused. I was harmed. And I get triggered every time I something reminds me of my abuser or my abuse. I, money has, there's no respect in me for it. Right. I give it away. I spend it. And, you know, just total recklessness with it until I healed. Then I understand sacrifice. Mm -hmm. If I go without now, then a year from now, I can go on a wonderful trip or do something, you know, mm -hmm. or buy something for mm -hmm. someone else, you know. 
So to feel centered and grounded in myself was critical, but in still, and to know that I need help. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, um, in my house, uh, my wife is a minister of finance. Yes. You know, which is, I'm totally okay with, you know, because no, magically, I don't know if it's magically, like you were saying it, Vicki, the women are the keepers of the fires, the nourishment for the household. Guys do it too, but, you know, this the core part of it is the life givers. Absolutely. Because that's where we come from. As people, we come from our mothers. Yep. You know, and um, they have the, the gift of seeing what security is, healthy security. To help a baby feel secure as they're growing. You know, if we went back to the old models, like that generosity part, you know, and I look back in my own upbringing, the inclusive upbringing I had with my parents. Yeah, they had some addiction problems, but basically beautiful, wonderful people. You know, and would tell me, oh, you go bring fish to those elders because you have more than enough. And I go give it to them. And the reward would be their twinkling eyes or laughter and sometimes tears. Thank you, nephew. Thank you, grandson. Or they call me son, even though we're not blood. You know, and it create that bond, that sense of purpose. So we look. And, I, and I'm thinking of our conversation and I say, okay, the steps needed is to first off be okay with ourselves, to deal with the issues that will distract us and weaken us, weaken me. You know, I tell the story of my forgiveness journey that is a core part of my healing was to forgive my abusers. Right. You know, because I, I had to change the context to the real, what it, forgiveness is about. It's about letting go. Because mm-hmm. I grew up thinking it meant turn the other cheek and say, it's okay, you abuse me and stuff. It's totally not about that, my understanding. Right. Just let them go. I refuse to carry you anymore, mm-hmm. abuser. You know? Sir Johnny McDonald, I refuse to carry you. I'm putting yes, you down. You know? yes. And then, then I attain freedom. Yes. You know, so that's yeah. indigenous methodology. Some people call it the medicine wheel. I call it the healing wheel. Mm, yeah. You know, we get to look at ourselves, look at, because our gift as indigenous people is vision. Yes. You can see what happens if we overfish, overhunt. Right. Right. Or we're not generous, <laughs> you know, because when you give, you receive. Mm-hmm. That's the law. Yep. What goes around comes around. That is law. That is the law. That's not that's, that's nature is. law, not yeah. man's law. That's nature law. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And look at where the world is right now. Oh, that right. pyramid system of getting to the top, no matter how. Right. There is causing extinction, 
causing climate change, you know, mental health issues, disorders. I think I feel this will be so beneficial for many of our people as we teach the children about money, about um, respect, that it literally comes from a tree, the money. Yes, yes. And now, you know, that the animal's life, the fish's life, or yeah. the corn. Because as human beings, we live on the multitude of spirits. Right. You know, whereas um, a herbivore just goes around eating certain grasses. But us, we live in many, many lives have given themselves up so we can survive, so we can live the way we want to. Absolutely. So we can teach. And that's one thing I'm going to ask you in closing here. Mm -hmm. I always close the podcast and I have guests to give you a chance to give a message to a specific group or just something that you want to get, put out there around money, you know, so that you can have a chance to give a message. And I will too, you know, and maybe I'll start off. I just wanted to give a message to my granddaughters, you know, to... Um, always have this gratitude mm. for food, for people that prepare food for you, for people that put time into your life, because that's valuable. And to respect money when it comes to you. To treat it like it was a salmon or a grouse. And to be generous with it. So that's the message I like my granddaughters to understand. Mm -hmm. So, Chantel, what would your message be to who it would be? My message would be to anybody um, who feels open to receive this. And that message is that the path to healing lies within the Indigenous worldviews. And everything that you were sharing, um, Jerry and Vicki, all the answers to healing are, are there. And um, that's the message. Mm. That is, that's the message right there. You know, what, how can we question the views that we're constantly bombarded with from dominant culture and introduce and empower other worldviews that are, are focused on healing and not profit only? Mm. Thank you, Chantel. Vicki. I mean, what both of you said, <laughs> but also one is that you spoke of vision, uh, Jerry, and I believe that our dreams, our desires, our visions given to us by that which created us. So to not discount what we want and what we feel that we can give the world and to pursue it. And that we have, not only are those visions given to us by, by that which created us, everything we need to, to help co-create that with the ultimate creator um, is within us as well. If only we commit, get clear, dedicate, and keep showing up to that vision and really believing it as well. And, you know, I have to have hope that this is possible. I can't sit here and do this work and not 
believe that this is a possibility. I, I, I believe it and I know it. Maybe not in my lifetime, maybe not in our lifetime, but we, we have to leave the future generations, the seven generations with a greater legacy than what we came in with, you know? And I'm happy to talk about money. Money is a tool. Yes. Oh, the, those are, that's brilliant. You know, it's a tool. Yes. It's no different than the digging stick or the harpoon or right. the net. Yes. It's a tool and we must, when you respect the tool, it prepares yes. for you. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. So good, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, this is such a wonderful way to end a podcast. But I just so appreciate both of you for taking this time in your lives to come and share about money, you know, and um, under the influence. Mm -hmm. When you're under the influence of positivity, mm -hmm. positivity radiates. Yeah. When you're under the influence of negativity, negativity radiates. So the title of this podcast is called Under the Influence, The Trauma of Money. 